0: Welcome to Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. I'll be your host for the next hour. I hope you'll find the hour entertaining, informative, witty, and lots of fun. I'm really glad you have time to spend some of your afternoon with me. I know how busy things get. In fact, every time I'm heading into the studio to do a show, I always think I'll get there. I say to myself, I'll get there early today, but as usual something always comes up because I'm always coming from my office and there's always something new to either see somebody or actually today was a great day because I actually had a lot of people came in and picked up their tax work. So that's always a good day for me. It's always fun to know I got the job done and everyone's happy. And in a lot of cases, it's refunds. Of course, refunds, remember, refunds are only there because you already paid the tax in. Now, I won't say that. There are some credits that are called refundable credits, and actually those can come to you in cash without you having paid them in, Um, one of which is called the earned income credit. So I'm not sure if any of you have that one. That's sort of a double-edged sword when someone gets the earned income credit. The good news is, well, they get a refundable free credit that comes as a check to their bank account, So, they can spend money on their family. But the other side of that coin is that means you didn't make a ton of money. The credit, it's an interesting credit. It increases up to around 20 or 25,000 of income. Then it decreases down. And then once you hit about 50,000 of total income, you get zero. A family with three children can get a credit, I believe it's up to, I don't have my tax book with me in front of me, but around, I think it's over $6,000. So if you are a family who doesn't make a whole lot of money, but you make maybe $20,000, $25,000 and you have three children, you can get an earned income credit sent to you as money for over $6,000. So it's kind of interesting. One of the other interesting things I've noticed is that if you have two people living together and they both have three children, I know that sounds a little like a stretch, but I know it does happen. If they, let's say they each earn $27,000, as a head of household with three children, if they're not married, they can each get a credit of maybe, I don't know, $4,000. Here's what happens if they were to want to get married and they did get married, then their total income would be 55,000 and even though they have 3 or more children they would have six the earned income credit goes away after i believe the 50,000 level or so that's another disincentive built into our tax system that is a called a marriage penalty it's something that i think somebody should address when the government tries to pretend that we are under judeo-christian ethics etc cetera, etc cetera, in on the one hand well they don't really profess that too much anymore but you know based on our founding fathers they sort of used to it's kind of strange that there's quite a few disincentives for people to marry i've mentioned a few in the past i might even have a show where i could take a few minutes and kind of go over some of those there's two or three that come to mind that have hit my clients actually directly hard, and I've had to warn them, if you do get married, here's what's going to happen to your taxes. That's a whole topic, the marriage penalty, and there are, there are a few of those. Oh, there's a new one with the new tax law. If you are aware of the new tax law, one of the limitations of itemized deductions, which are sort of the personal deductions, is the limit on what they call the SALT, which is state and local taxes. There's a section where you deduct state income tax, property tax, and that section didn't used to have a dollar limit. It now has a dollar limit of $10,000. But the dollar limit is per return, not per person. Here's what's a marriage penalty on that one. If you have two single people, each single person is entitled to deduct up to $10,000 of state and local taxes and property tax. But a married couple is also limited to $10,000 of state and local taxes. That is an example of another marriage penalty in the tax law. What's interesting about that is that on the one hand you want to, you know, you want to promote families and you would probably want to promote marriage for two people living together with children in the house. But if it's going to take away six to $8,000 of free money every year, it's probably hard to convince them to get married. So that's sort of an opinion, but it's also a fact. It's a tax fact, but it's my opinion that those should be looked at and somehow revamped. I think marriage penalties should not be in the tax law, but they... They are. So my first topic today, and it's another lovely Chico Day, which uh, there's a lot of those. It's a nice time of year weather-wise. can be a little too hot, but not that bad most of the day. My first subject today is just an article called Trump Budget Cuts IRS Funding by $239 million. And it was dated... Uh, I think it was just dated a few days ago. And I'm just going to read a couple quick uh, sentences out of this. Americans for Tax Reform President Grover Norquist praised the cut. Oh, and the quote above is, Diverting resources from antiquated operations that are still reliant on paper-based review in the era, era of electronic tax filing would achieve significant savings a funding reduction of $239 million from the 2017 annualized level. Then he goes on, Americans for Tax Reform President Grover Norquist praised the cut. President Trump's first budget outline makes it clear he is governing as Reagan did. Tax cuts, deregulation, spending restraint and reduction. And this time he has a Reagan Republican House and Senate at his side. And so this guy goes on to say the IRS has failed to spend taxpayer resources wisely. Well, I can tell you as a CPA, I am basically not allowed to criticize the IRS, like, like a libel and slander kind of thing, so I don't. I will say that it is true that the IRS, even though they're super computerized as far as the, the computer that finds that income that you forgot to list on your tax return, as you might know, that computer works really well. What I mean by that is if you sell $10,000 worth of stock and then following year when you do your tax return, you forget to list that stock sale, even if it was a loss and it would have saved you tax, the IRS computer will see that $10,000 sale and it will send you a letter saying, hello, we think you might owe $2,500 of tax on this sale Please let us know what's going on. In that respect, the IRS is very fluent and very tech savvy. What they aren't tech savvy with yet has to do with the side of the IRS that has to deal with fraud, fraudulent return preparers, fraudulent people who might call them and say, I need some information sent to me. They still use the United States Postal Service for a majority of their communications. They also use the fax machine for communications, which really isn't as secure as an encrypted email, as far as I know. I am not a tech guy, I'm not a computer programmer, so don't hold me to that if that's not a fact. But in my opinion, faxes are like phone calls, I'm sure they can be intercepted. So the IRS uses a lot of US mail. They use a lot of faxes. They don't use email for very much. There may be some things now that are being emailable, but for instance, if I'm working on a case for a client and we're dealing with the IRS, I won't say the A word. It's bad luck to say the A word. But if I'm dealing with a client with the IRS and we're corresponding numbers back and forth or paperwork back and forth, I do not get an email address for the auditor that I can send that to. I get a phone number and I get a fax number, and we end up doing quite a bit of faxing. In that respect, the IRS is behind the curve and they do need to upgrade somehow, but I do know that that whole reason they do that is just because of the fraud aspect of they don't want a lot of things going back and forth between them and taxpayers via email that would have social security numbers, addresses, bank accounts. Nothing gets more personal than an IRS audit because everything of yours they see. They see your bank statements. They see the deposits you make. They see the checks you write. Of course, if it's a business audit, they're not going to look at your personal check writing, but they still look at your bank statements because the first step of any audit step is, oh, sorry, I said the A word. The first step of an exam is they will look at all of your bank deposits and then back out like bank transfers and then any number left from deposits minus transfers, you have to explain why it's not income. That's sort of the burden of proof of the general American taxpayer. You have to prove that all the money you received is why it is not income if it's not on your tax return. So you could have you could have borrowed money on a $40,000 home equity line then that 40,000 deposit you can show them oh here's the paperwork this was a loan or here's the $10,000 gift from my grandmother here's the paper here's the deposit here's the check that I put in on that basically all of your income is the general rule for the IRS is all of your income is taxable unless the IRS code says it isn't for some reason. And they do say that loans are not taxable. They say that gifts are not taxable. They say that inheritances are not straight taxable. Life insurance proceeds are not taxable. Municipal bond interest income is not taxable. But other than those things, it's pretty much all of your income is taxable. And it's up to you to prove that that bank deposit was not income of some sort. What I'm trying to say is that the IRS needs to upgrade their communication system because they're spending way too much money and time on paper and postage when 99% of the world would do that via safely encrypted email. I know they email each other. They're a big, giant organization. I'm sure they have tons of emails every day. And I also believe that when I fax to the IRS it automatically converts into an email that they receive. But it's not where I'm actually emailing an IRS person. The other issue they would have would be getting hacked on their emails. So they wouldn't want a million people having the emails of IRS agents. It's just a long process for them to turn this thing around. It's like turning an ocean liner around. You don't do it in a 50-degree circle. You do it over five miles and... Turning the IRS into a efficient email-based organization is just not going to be overnight. I personally don't have anything against the IRS people that I've actually met. I believe that they are good people. Well, sort of like, remember, Trump said, oh, the Clintons are good people. I like... The people that I've met at the IRS have been very kind and nice, but they have a job to do, so they can't just walk away from your case and say, oh, forget it, we'll let you go, whatever. But generally, they're very good people, and I'm not just saying that. It's just that I've I've been here for 30 years doing income taxes. I've probably had a couple of appointments at least every year, so I've probably been to the IRS office for 60 different cases, and... Just generally, they're just doing their job. I want to get back to, after the first break, I want to come back to a little bit of news that is sort of local. It's Northern California local, but I think it also ends up affecting the Chico area locally, so that's why I want to get into that bit of local news after going through my little IRS news section. This article is uh, really interesting because it has to do with Bay Area residents and what they think of the Bay Area. And I think that's going to end up having an effect on the Chico area. The Chico area has had a pretty good price run up in property values over the last few years, but it also did in 2004, 2005, 2006, and I really hope that we don't have any kind of repeat of the real estate issues that happened back in the 07, 08 years. And this article that I'm going to talk to you about kind of gets into that a little bit. I, I sort of have mixed emotions about all this. When prices go up, it's great for people who already own a home. But it's really tough on people who are like a young family trying to get their first home. To start. So it's sort of a mixed bag as far as the good of high price homes. We're coming up on that first break. Stay tuned to Business Buzz. This is Harold Littlejohn, CPA. I'll be right back in a minute.
1: you go all the way to mars for water when we have the best tasting water at mount shasta it comes from our protected springs and is delivered right to your door great landing bob hey where are you going with that those martians are stealing my water guess we have some new customers and anyone can get mount shasta spring water if they call us at 1-800-922-6227 pure and simple
0: naturally the best mount shasta spring water Welcome back to Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. I'm so glad you have a chance to spend a little part of your afternoon with me. I always try to keep you informed of business news, investing news, IRS news. And then I also like to share some of my own things for the last bit of the show. So stay with me. we got some interesting topics coming up. Now, this article is called... Nearly half of Bay Area residents say they want to leave. A five-county poll conducted for the Silicon Valley Leadership Group found that more than one-third of Bay Area apartment renters and one-quarter of residents in their 20s and 30s say they are struggling to afford their housing. Despite the Bay Area's natural beauty and booming job market, nearly half of its residents now want to get out, citing a creeping disillusionment with the high cost of housing. Now this is the statistic that blows me away. 46% of Bay Area residents surveyed say they are likely to move out of the region in the next few years, up from 40% last year and 34% in 2016. The numbers show a disturbing trend in one of the nation's most expensive housing markets. Workers desperate for a better quality of life and without housing options will go elsewhere, potentially plunging the region into a financial downturn. So I won't read the whole article, but to me that's kind of amazing. And my lead into this uh, before the break was that, well, where are those people going to go? if you have a person in the Bay Area that's paying 3500 a month for an apartment and maybe they're making, I don't know, I'm just kind of going off the top of my head. If they were making 80000 a year, that's about 7000 a month. That'd probably qualify them to afford $3,500. i am just using these numbers. They might look at that and say, well, since I want to leave this area, I could get the same standard of living with a job that paid 50000 in a place where the rent was only 1200 a month. Something like that. I haven't run these numbers. But if you understand what I'm saying, to me that sounds like a perfect opportunity for a place just like Chico to attract these kind of people. Whether it's good to have a lot of growth up here, I th- I believe it is. This town is just a great place to raise a family, that's what I did. It's sort of by itself, but yet it's big enough to offer all the amenities of nice restaurants and fun things to do and entertainment and hotels for your family if you need to have them stay. Hunting, fishing, you know, there's so much to offer here. This is the kind of thing that leads me to believe that even if real estate does have a downturn, There's going to be a lot of people that are going to be fleeing the Bay Area and trying to find a place that is a good quality of life. I grew up in the East Bay. I am familiar with a lot of the surrounding areas of the Bay Area. And to be honest, I don't see a lot of wonderful, great places to go within 40 minutes to an hour of the Bay Area sure, there's nice places, but are the homes going to be much less than they are already down in Silicon Valley? What I'm talking about is people who, like I did in the late 80s, just decided, you know what? I don't like the Bay Area. I don't like driving in the Bay Area. I'm figuring out a way. I happen to be fortunate. I figured out a way to move up here and continue some Bay Area work so that I could get established in Chico. But Other people have ways to do that also. A lot of the people I've met over the last few decades here, a lot of times it's someone like a nurse who can pretty much transfer to a hospital here and still make good money, and then the husband who did a different job in the Bay Area can find one up here once the wife is working. People like that. That happens quite a bit. What I'm trying to say is that even if real estate does have a downturn or the economy turns down, I still believe that there's going to be a big demand for people to find a place that's not like the Bay Area, not like Los Angeles and the sprawling city areas like that, and I really do feel that with 46% of the people, I don't know, of course, we don't know how they took this poll, and we don't know who they called, so it's not scientific, but If 46% of the people in the Bay Area are thinking they'd like to leave within a few years, you got to answer the second half. Where are they going to go? And I I would bet that their idea for going would be somewhere smaller, somewhere less hectic, somewhere less of a rat race. If you really wanted the city but you wanted cheaper housing, well, not the city. If you really wanted an area like a suburb area, You could pick cities all over the country that would have a lot better housing situation. People who go to Texas can get a huge house with huge ground, really nice, for a couple hundred thousand dollars. That's probably not what these people are thinking. Maybe they are. I have no idea. Like I say, that poll should be followed up with another poll that asks what type of town? What type of situation are you looking to move to? One other thing, like myself, when I moved up here, I didn't even consider starting a family and having children when I was living in the Bay Area. I didn't feel like I was ever that grounded down there. Oh, I grew up there, but I never really felt like, oh, this is just the place for me. That is why I think that there's probably a lot of people in their 20s and 30s, like this thing said about how frustrated they are with their housing problem there. If they're in their 20s or 30s, that is the age where women decide, well, if I'm going to start a family, I'm 35, I probably should get rolling on that idea. That's the type of people who would be perfect to come to a town like Chico or you know Sacramento also, even though that's such a large city in itself there's suburbs that are nice but Chico is really kind of unique because it's it's just so much kind of by itself you don't have that sprawling metropolis like Sacramento and all the areas near it that go on forever sort of like Los Angeles I drove from Sacramento to Lake Tahoe a few weeks ago and that's what struck me was just how far you have to go to be away from You know, the suburbs and the people and the malls and the the retail. It's quite a sprawling area now that I know it used to be more like country. That's my take on Bay Area news as far as business goes. I really do feel that Chico is the spot that a lot of people are going to find out about. And if they haven't already found out, when they do, they're probably going to want to come here. And uh, as long as we can keep some kind of job situation I do wonder when I see all the growth and all the new houses I wonder where the jobs are coming from but I also realize that a lot of my clients have relatives and parents that are actually moving out of the Bay Area like we were talking about and I mean if you sell a house in Fremont for nine hundred thousand it's not that big of a stretch to figure you could spend three or four here in Chico and get something really nice so that's the way I see that for what it's worth, that's that's just my, my opinion. Next topic. My favorite business topic lately because it's just so much fun to delve into. It's the... I've talked about him before. I'm going to talk about him a little bit today. It's the Tesla CEO named Elon Musk. And he's been having a few meltdowns lately. There was like a... Uh, what they call a it's a conference call where all the shareholders get to listen in on the CEO, which is Chief Executive Officer, and he's the CEO of Tesla. He's just a real interesting guy, and I like I say, if he has any profitable businesses at the moment, I'd love somebody to point that out to me because I don't think he does. So the headline of this article, which came from, it's came from a place that I never read because I just... Purposely don't because I believe it's edited by like Chelsea Clinton or something. And it's called The Daily Beast. And just the word beast, I, I don't really care for that name. But this article caught my eye and I had to share it with you. It's called Tesla Veterans Reveal Fires, Accidents, and Delays Inside Elon Musk's Company. Their sleek, powerful electric cars are a taste of the future, but the company struggles when it comes to actually building them. Tesla CEO Elon Musk's attacks. Wow, that was one quick segment. I'll be right back after the break. We're going to delve into some of Tesla's issues these days. I hope your broker hasn't put you into too much Tesla stock. This is Harold Littlejohn, CPA. I'll be right back with you after this message. How are you going to get to the Sacramento airport? Use North Valley Shuttle. It's easy online at NorthValleyShuttle.com. Don't be that person who bugs their friends or family to take you. Book online right now at NorthValleyShuttle.com. North Valley Shuttle has added new departure and arrival times each week for your convenience. Serving Chico, Paradise, Oroville, Gridley, Live Oak, and Yuba City Marysville. North Valley Shuttle gets you there quickly and safely. Leave the car at home and let NorthValleyShuttle.com do the driving. License PSC 20791.
1: From the Pacific Justice Institute, this is The Legal Edge, defending your rights as a Christian, a parent, and a citizen. Here's Brad Dickus. We at Pacific Justice Institute encourage all of you to exercise your constitutional rights and secure our blessed freedoms by going to your local polling stations and casting your vote in the primary and general elections this year. Now, this republic exists because each of us participates in the election process by voting. Register and vote to secure religious freedom, free speech, parental rights, and protect the unborn. Pacific Justice Institute has a guide available about your rights to have your voice heard called Church and Politics. Visit pji.org and download it for free. The Pacific Justice Institute provides legal representation to individuals without charge. Learn more at pacificjustice.org. That's pacificjustice.org. 180 over 111, and I had a stroke. 145 over 92, and then I had a heart attack. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke.
0: This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from silent. Get back on your treatment plan or talk with your doctor to create a plan
1: that works for you. Go to LowerYourHBP.org. Everything's changed. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council.
0: Welcome back to Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. I'm so glad you can spend part of your afternoon with me. I was talking about my one of my favorite, quote, businessmen, end quote, Elon Musk, and I'm just going to read a few more bits of this article. Uh, His automaker has struggled to deliver on the promise of a mass-market, fully electric car, the Model 3 sedan. When Musk delivered the first Model 3s last year, now keep in mind, Model 3 is the one he promised to be the everyman's car, kind of like Henry Ford had the Model T. Well, Elon Musk has the Model 3. It was promised to be the everyman car for about $35,000. It turns out that the, the only Model 3 they can roll off the assembly line is costing 70 dollars or $80,000. It says here, When Musk delivered the first Model 3s last year, he jokingly warned customers and employees that the firm would be entering, quote, Production hell. But according to several former Tesla insiders, it's not a joke. Cars built by hand, fires that turned a paint sprayer into a flamethrower, rampant quality problems, and a bloated workforce plagued the factory, the insiders say. That's on top of an injury rate that Reveal News reports is higher than the industry average with shocking examples. These interconnected symptoms of Tesla's production hell raise questions about the company's entire approach to manufacturing, which diverges significantly from the auto industry's practices that have been honed over decades. The sources requested anonymity to speak. Well, yeah, I guess so. I'll continue. Because of Tesla's history of trying to catch leakers, including once reportedly leaving a fingerprint in memos to find who divulged them to the press. But ultimately, Tesla's business is to make cars, and a lot of them. Tesla said it plans to make as many as one million Model 3s per year by the end of the decade. Yet it has already fallen behind its targets for Model 3 production. Stumbling on the Model 3 from practically day one, Tesla's frantic attempts to meet Musk's ambitious production targets are exacting a heavy cost on its people, products, and culture. In the week following the official start of Model 3 production last summer, Musk was asked during Tesla's second quarter earnings call if the first round of vehicles off the assembly line were validation prototypes built to test parts and the production system. These are not prototypes in any way, he replied. They're not validation anything. They are full production cars. But according to two former Tesla employees, they were hand-built cars made with unvalidated parts. That black Model 3, that first production one that Elon said was the first production one, that was a crock of blank, said one former employee whose work took him to almost every part of the factory. I walked that thing through the shop. I watched the dudes build it in the back area, the little cave area known internally as Area 51, and he drove it off. The first Model 3s were hand-walked through the paint shop because machines weren't programmed to recognize that car. So they were just sitting there as props said a former high-level employee who confirms that the July event cars were hand-built prototypes. The Wall Street Journal previously reported these Model 3s were hand-built. On top of that, a recently filed lawsuit on behalf of Tesla shareholders accuses the company of securities fraud alleging management misrepresented Tesla's ability to begin mass production of Model 3s in 2017. The lawsuit cites more than 10 former employees to support the allegation that Musk and other top Tesla executives either knew or were reckless in not knowing their claims were false. Tesla filed a motion to dismiss the lawsuit, saying it spoke about the challenges publicly in frank and plain language like, quote, production hell. Anyway, this guy's trying to be kind of funny. But I'm not going to read this whole thing. The bottom line is that we have a company that you might even own in your 401k or your brokerage account, and that company may not be long for the, for the uh, existence. Uh, I'm not saying it's going to go to zero, but there's been a lot of experts, supposed experts, I can't I can't vouch for them, I don't know these people uh, personally, but there's a lot of people who basically state that Tesla stock is worth zero, and that's their, that's their basic theory. So, I won't beat a dead horse, but I do wanna mention, and the reason I mention that Tesla story is number one, I find it entertaining and actually humorous to read about Teslas that like drive themselves, they blow up, they catch on fire, One article I read mentioned that the insurance cost, if you buy one of these Teslas, you better, not only do you have a $1,200 payment each month, you might be looking at a $500 insurance premium each month because they've been known to basically explode on their own and drive on their own. And it's not, it's not a, I don't think it's a very safe, I don't think it's real safe. I hope I don't get into trouble saying all these things, but like I say, I find it's entertaining I actually laugh at some of these articles, except it's sad when the ones where people actually die in these things. It's just, it's just seems to be a big Ponzi scheme. And the reason I mention it is for all you know, your broker has you buying Tesla stock in your 401k or your brokerage account. Have you looked at your list lately? The other thing that's interesting is if you own a mutual fund in one of your investment accounts, read through the prospectus that they send every three months they keep wanting to go uh internet with this and uh, they keep wanting me to go paperless but I enjoy leafing through those so I let them mail it to me and I look at the list of stocks and bonds that these mutual funds have and it's like oh goodness I mean I still have some of those as investments but I I don't add to them and uh I don't feel that they're that they're definitely not a large part of my uh Accounts there's no no doubt about it. It's a very small amount. I don't trust anything That these brokers say and it's not that they're always dishonest. It's that they really haven't been reading their any homework I tell you guys alternative news so I can educate you They should be reading alternative news, but they really don't they don't want to hear it when you make your living off of commissions from people buying mutual funds and stocks I don't think you're going to want to hear the alternative news that Harold Littlejohn CPA puts on Business Buzz. Next up is my favorite author. He's got a great article that I want to share part of with you. The author is Egon von Greyers. I come back to him a lot. You're probably getting sick of hearing that name, but I think you should read his stuff. Every week that I look at his latest articles, I just love what he says, and I love the way he says it. This is called gold, the only money that can't be debased. If you're wondering what the word debased means, it means when a government, well, it's not even the government, when the Federal Reserve, which is called a central bank, when they take the world reserve currency, which is the U.S. dollar that's been the world reserve currency for at least 40-something years, when they take that and treat it the way they've treated it by printing trillions and trillions of bailout dollars to send to foreign banks to prop up worthless banks, that is called debasing a currency. In other words, the money supply for the U.S. has gone up so high now that our currency is worth a lot less than it was before. That's it's called debase. So I'm going to continue. Gold, the only money that can't be debased. In 1980, global assets, including property, were less than $20 trillion. Today, almost 40 years later, they have grown to $524 trillion. That is a compound annual growth rate of 9%, which is quite remarkable for a 38-year period. Global assets have gone up 26-fold in this period. In the same period, gold went from an average price of around $650 in 1980 to $1,300 today. So while gold, global assets have gone up 26 times since 1980, gold has just managed to go up two times. Admittedly, gold started at $35 in 1971, so it had already benefited from a substantial rise by 1980. Nevertheless, since 1980, gold has been totally ignored both as an investment as, and as insurance or wealth protection. The massive increase in money supply, that's what I was just talking to you about, through credit expansion and money printing has gone into conventional assets such as stocks, bonds, and real estate, but not into gold. Gold has been a forgotten asset and investment for 38 years and has not even kept pace with inflation with gold's 1.8% annual growth rate since 1980. So there has been very little interest in gold while other investment assets have surged. We identified gold as a strategic investment for wealth preservation in 2002 at $300 and recommended to our investors to put a substantial percentage of their assets into gold with a minimum of 25%. Since then, gold has been performing better than most investment classes. But the rare rise so far is totally insignificant compared to what is going to come. The next topic here on this article, biggest wealth transfer in history. And when I come up on this break, I'm going to come back to this article because you really need to hear this. Because between now and 2025, we are going to see the biggest transfer of wealth in history. The coming transfer will affect global investment markets in a way which will be totally shocking to most investors. All conventional markets, bonds, stocks, and real estate will lose at least 50 to 75% and possibly more. At the same time, gold and silver will not just catch up with the underperformance since 1980. The precious metals will experience a totally unexpected investment mania of spectacular proportions. As stocks and bonds fall precipitously, the markets will be overcome by a fear that the world hasn't experienced since the 1929 crash, but this time it is likely to be much worse. World financial assets, including property. Global assets at $524 trillion currently are shown in this table below. You don't need to see that. A major part of that is property, which is a massive bubble in many countries like the US, UK, Australia, New Zealand, China, Hong Kong, Sweden, Switzerland, etc. I'll get right back to this article when we come back from a short break. This is Business Buzz. This is Harold Littlejohn CPA. Stay tuned. I'll be right back with you.
1: One listener describes the impact of our station on her life.
0: Whenever I'm just going through a tough time, I've had plenty of times where I've just been down, and I, I just wanted to sit there and sulk because something bad happened to me. I just wanted to be like that. During
1: the tough times, we have the teaching and talk that helps give people hope.
0: It's like, you know what? God's got this under control. It's all Him. That's what I want. You know, it's, it's all God, and it helps uplift me every day just like that.
1: We have a message that lightens your load. Life Radio, KKXX AM and FM.
0: Welcome back to Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. Glad you can be with me for part of your busy afternoon. I'm going to just continue with this article about gold. It mentioned that the $524 trillion in the world includes a lot of real estate and like US, UK, Australia, China, Hong Kong, Switzerland. Then he says, low interest rates and unlimited credit have driven property prices to dizzy heights, so dizzy that they are now ready to fall down to earth very fast. Now looking at gold in this little table, the figure of $3 trillion, now remember $524 trillion is the total assets, and that's mostly paper and property values. The figure of $3 trillion represents all the gold in the world ever produced, which is in gold bars or coins, including electronic trading funds, some of which may not have the physical gold. It also includes central banks many of which don't have the gold they officially declare. But that gold will then be somewhere else, like in China, India, or Russia. So it clearly exists, albeit elsewhere. So based on these numbers, only 0.6% of world financial assets are in physical gold. Back in 1960, gold represented 5%. So that's about 10 to 1. Well, 8.5 to 1. The coming implosion of asset bubbles will lead to a reduction of asset prices of at least 50% between today and 2025. That will obviously cause a major financial crisis and massive problems in the financial system since assets do not just include stocks and property but also bonds and loans. Thus, the banking system will be under tremendous pressure and so will insurance companies and pension funds. Now, I want to mention that when he says... Things will go down by 50%. They can also go down by 50% if the dollar, even if the price stays the same, if the dollars are twice as hard to earn. In other words, if the dollars get debased, then even though the price stays the same in dollars, the dollars themselves are worth a lot less. So, in other words, you know, if you have a, think of it this way. If you were back in 19 in Hollywood and or uh, in Beverly Hills in 1950 you could probably buy a mansion for $300,000. Well that same man now, now right now you could get a small house in a poor neighborhood in Los Angeles for maybe $300,000. So that house is worth $300,000 also. The problem is the mansion in Bel Air was worth $300,000 nineteen fifty dollars and now your house in Chico or a house in a bad neighborhood in LA is worth three hundred thousand current dollars that's where they they and I say they that's where the central banks and the whole debt based system annihilates people's wealth and that's how that works so I'm going to just read a little more uh, the The one exception is gold, which will reflect the crisis by gaining substantially in price to reflect its real importance as the only money that can't be debased, as well as the ultimate wealth preservation asset. A gold price of $5,000 in today's prices is a minimum in my view. Now, he goes on to justify that. $5,000 an ounce for gold would would still be only 4% of global assets in the above scenario. At that point, gold is starting to assume its role as money, which has always been the case throughout history. As stocks, bonds, and property collapse, gold is again assuming its monetary mantle. So I can't read this whole thing, but I will also go for this. For anyone who believes that a 75% fall in stocks is impossible, just remember what happened to the Dow in 1929. At that time, the Dow collapsed by 90% in an economic scenario which was much more benign than today. The U.S. was then a creditor nation, and the global debt situation was minuscule compared to today. And not only did the Dow decline by 90%, but now get this part, folks. It took over 25 years before it attained the 1929 peak again. The coming fall is not only likely to be greater than the 75% assumption, but it will take even longer than 25 years to recover due to the global nature of the crisis and the major worldwide financial debacle that will ensue. I'm not going to belabor you anymore. If you haven't caught on to what I'm trying to explain about gold being something that should be part of your asset portfolio, it's all I can say is it should be a part. Right now it's on on a fire sale. And I won't go into the reasons for that. I've explained it before as well as I can. It is made to look bad so that you don't buy it. It's made to look bad so you don't take $1,300 out of your bank account and trade that 1300 paper dollars for an ounce of gold. It's made to look bad. That's all I can tell you. It's a, It's a topic I've been studying for years. I can't explain it in two minutes but I have explained it before and I will touch on it again on Business Buzz. I do like to say that you should have at least 10% of your asset wealth in physical gold and that's all I'm going to say for today. I do beat dead horses so to speak and I, I hate to do that but I feel that I'm doing you a favor. I only have a few minutes left today. I did want to share a couple of things. I am getting ready this summer to publish my book called The Miracle Business Method. And it does have quite a bit to do with a book called A Course in Miracles, which I have shared part of it with you. I was going to read a little bit of The Miracle Business Method today, but I wanted to preface it by a little bit from the course, which is my favorite book. I read part of it to you a week or two ago. One thing about the course is when I first started studying it, and I recommend you at least look into it, I think you can download a copy if you're an Amazon Kindle or a Nook book person. You could probably download a copy for 12 or $13. A lot of times at Barnes & Noble, they have some of these on sale for $12.99. It's a great book, but when I first read it, I was telling you last time, I didn't know what it was talking about. I was definitely enthralled by it. I've been a daily addict of the book for the last 10 years or so. But when I first read it, I really didn't know. So the more I've read, the more help I've gotten, the more experts I've listened to. One of the key factors that really helped me to learn what the Course in Miracles is really saying was when I learned that the definition of a miracle is a correction. That is really a key factor if you ever do decide to look into this book, which I recommend you at least try. One thing is at the very start of the book, chapter one, part one, is called The Meaning of Miracles, and Principles of Miracles, there's 50 of them to start the book. So before you're even close to learning that a miracle is a correction, when you, if you start reading this book on page one, which is what I did that interesting night uh, 10 or 11 years ago when I got it, I was clueless, but I still kept reading. And if you realize that miracles are corrections, and if you remember when I talked about this last time, The correction is simply to shift your mind from your thinking mind and your chatterbox mind to shift over to the observing mind that observes those thoughts. That is the correction. I'm boiling this 1,300-page book down to two minutes of teaching. The correction is changing your mind on a minute-by-minute basis and a miracle in the book is a correction. So I'm just going to read a few of these principles of miracles as a little precursor to the miracle business method. Principle of, principles of miracles, number one, there is no order of difficulty in miracles. One is not harder or bigger than another. They are all the same. All expressions of love are maximal. Miracles, number two, miracles as such do not matter. The only thing that matters is their source, which is far beyond evaluation. Miracles, number three, miracles occur naturally as expressions of love. The real miracle is the love that inspires them. In this sense, everything that comes from love is a miracle. Number four, all miracles mean life And God is the giver of life. His voice will direct you very specifically. You will be told all you need to know. Now, number five is one I really like, and that's going to be the last one I'm going to read today. Miracles are habits and should be involuntary. They should not be under conscious control. Consciously selected miracles can be misguided. Oh, number six is the one I wanted to get to. Sorry. Number six miracles are natural when they do not occur something has gone wrong so that's just a that's sort of a background to the miracle business method because i'm trying to teach people that even though the course actually states that we're only here in order to correct things and to forgive because like when jesus said forgive them for they know not what they do he wasn't talking about what they did or what they've done. He was simply talking about the fact that nobody has really been clued into what's really going on. And I think when you get a little older, I'm not super old, but I'm i am getting up there. When you get a little older, and if you're older, you might understand where I'm coming from, you really do start taking things less seriously than when you were young. And I think part of that is, you start to realize, which is part of the course, is that the body is not really the be-all, end-all, and it's really not what you are. You aren't really this body full of cells and water and blood and energy and all these different mitochondria and cell parts that work together. I remember hearing on the Eckhart Tolle book, he was saying that each human cell holds the equivalent information of 600 thousand page books something like that and then you you have trillions of cells in your body something to that effect so whatever this body is it's way beyond our comprehension it's not what it really it's not what you think it is that's the one of the main points of the whole course and By reading and doing the exercises in the course, as you get older, you start taking things less seriously. I don't mean you treat people worse or you don't treat people with respect. The forgiveness thing is the real key of the whole book. As you forgive people, you're actually forgiving yourself. And that's a little bit beyond what I can tell you in the next two minutes that I have left today. Just remember that the basic course that I'm talking about teaches that everything you see is a projection of your own mind and that when you forgive others, you're actually forgiving yourself. So I'm just going to read a little part of the Miracle Business Method. I grabbed it here on my phone because it's on my Google Drive because I'm in the process of editing it. I've actually lined up an editor. I'm actually, don't quote me, I'm working on an agent and Talking with an agent, whether that'll come to fruition or not, I actually have a connection that knows New York agents, so I might get in on one of those. Not sure. I'll keep you posted. But this this little short chapter, and the thing about the book the Miracle Business Method, it's short little chapters with a little exercise at the end of each chapter. Now the exercises haven't all been written yet, so that's where the editing is in its last stages but this one, this part of the book is called How Mature Are You? Get on the Scale. Sometimes I read a book that just knocks my socks off. Spiritually Incorrect Enlightenment by Jed McKenna is a fantastic read for anyone interested in the topic of spirituality. It is thought-provoking, witty, and irreverent. I love it. One of the book's ideas is looking at people as children or as adults not based on age, but based on their level of recognition of spirit. In other words, you might have a grown up that is completely connected to the world and its trappings. This mature in age person would be considered an infant on the spirituality awareness scale. In contrast, what about a young person tuned into the spirit side of things like the young Jesus when he disappeared for many years, quite possibly to the far East. He could, very, he could be very mature. He could be a real adult when viewed on the spirituality awareness scale. So think about that today. Well, I'm going to have to leave you with that. It's been great having you here for Business Buzz. Please come back every day at 3, and especially Tuesday and Thursday. This is Harold Littlejohn CPA. Thank you. KXX, Paradise, K280GL, Chico, and K283AR, Chico, Yuba City, Marysville.
1: With SRN News, I'm Keith Peters in Washington. House Speaker Paul Ryan says he has seen no evidence to support the President's claim the FBI planted spies in his campaign during the 2016 election. Ryan agreeing with House Oversight Committee Chairman Trey Gowdy that a classified briefing showed no evidence of wrongdoing on the part of the FBI. I think Chairman Gowdy's initial assessment is accurate. Uh, I think, uh, but but we have some more digging to do. Uh, We're waiting for some more document requests. We have some more documents to review.